Welcome back to Meet the Creatives. Today, at long last, I am reunited uh, with one of my favorite people in the world, Leland Mashmeyer, Chief Brand Officer at Chobani. Leland, thanks for being back on the show. It's, uh, you were one of my first guests, and it's a uh, privilege to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's, uh, it's hard to believe that was almost, what, five years ago, I think. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was stated before the podcast that I was referring to my girlfriend, who is my now wife, and I was saying that my career thus far, and I was still uh, in college, so uh, it's been pretty incredible um, to have uh, stayed in touch with you and um, for all the relationships that you kind of um, helped me to establish, whether it be with Collins or Chobani, it's, I'm really grateful for it, so. Two things we're covering today. Chobani, uh, my favorite yogurt in the world. This is not product placement. He did not have me do this, but I actually still have it here on the counter. I got the new creamer. This is the, the hazelnut one off the mm -hmm. chain. And I normally drink my coffee black and I'm not really like a big creamer guy. So I feel like I am like the ultimate litmus test for this. And it's fantastic. I love it. I love Chobani. We're gonna talk about that. And then secondly, the second half of the podcast, um, we're going to provide some insight for entry-level designers and creatives. Um, and I have one of the smartest people I know here to help us out today. So if Lee can't help you out, you know, who knows? So, all right, let's get into it. Chobani, you are the uh, chief brand officer. Uh, you are the chief creative officer before that. What led you to want to go to Chobani? I know that you are the co-founder along with uh, our good friend, Brian Collins. Um, that's where I actually met you. You were working uh, at Collins, and I know you've maintained a lot of those relationships. But what was it about Chobani in particular? Because um, you were, um, you know, the co-founder of one of like a world-renowned agency, and then you went in-house. What was it about Chobani in particular that really made you want to join that company? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that I wasn't looking for. Obviously, I was very happy at Collins, and we were on a massive growth tear and. I loved all the people I worked with. I love Brian, still to this day do. Um, and it was just one of those things that when it first presented itself to me, it, it just seemed like just, you know, just another job. Um, right. But once I talked with the founder and the president, those were the only two people that I interviewed with, uh, I started to realize that it was a little different and it was actually much more interesting than I originally thought. Um, the, the two of them used a phrase, uh, consistently called, we want to be a modern food company. So I asked like, well, what is a modern food company? And neither one of them had a definition of that. And so I was like, that's actually pretty interesting. Like what is a modern food company? And the thought of me coming in and helping drive that was really exciting to me. Uh, and so I kind of took that as the remit of the role, even though that's not originally how it was kind of pitched. Mm -hmm. I said, that's, that's the role. And part, and part of it was building an in-house creative capability, uh, which also was interesting to me. I mean, at the time, four or five years ago, in-house was still the wild, wild west. I mean, in many ways, it still is the wild, wild west. So the idea of building something that was future facing in terms of where the industry was going on the client side and both, you know, what a modern food company is and like, what does creativity look like inside were both really interesting to me. And it wasn't something that, you know, it, it weren't problems that somebody would bring to any agency. And so when I looked at it that way, I said, it's not that I'm leaving Collins, it's that I'm moving towards what seems to be a very unique opportunity for a company that is in the right stage of its maturation to charge after this type of ambition. I, I said, like, I, 
you know, as crazy as it sounds, I'm going to leave the company I found and go work at a yogurt company to do that. <laughs> and so that, that was, that was honestly, honestly the logic and, and lucky enough because of Chobani and my partners at Chobani and stuff, it's turned out to be that and more. You know, I love the product of Chobani. I have like so many, when it comes to like Chobani flips, I have, you know, I want to make like a draft one day and maybe we could do this afterwards. We could like vote and see if like the most popular flavor, but the branding in particular really stands out to me to see what it has become and it has consistently evolved has been really uh, remarkable. But can you talk about building uh, that look and feel and, and that identity and, and, and what was that process like? Uh, you know, like anyone who, who does good work will tell you, you can't start with the ambition of like, I want to create something that's award winning, or I want to create something that everyone admires. It's just, you got to start with like, I need to solve the problem. And when uh, we started the process, you know, there were so many things to figure out that from a business perspective, there was like no brand strategy, there was no product architecture, there wasn't a real strong understanding of like who the consumer audiences were and stuff like that. And, and, and frankly, there wasn't a very articulate point of view of what Shabani meant yeah. and what Shabani believed in, sort of a lot of those brand equity type of stuff. So we started from the perspective of before we can do anything creatively with this company um, or marketing wise with this company, we have to understand what is the white hot center of this company? What is its values and ethos? And, and fundamentally, what is the, the core mythology that this organization lives? Because, you know, in a somewhat stripped down, but also still kind of high minded way, branding is nothing but corporate myth making. So if you want to express that. a brand, you have to understand the story that the brand is living. And so that's what I spent the vast majority of my time doing is just trying to understand through little signals that I picked up in language in the company and what products the company have made, what was the ingredient list, what, how things were sourced, uh, where was Hamdi from, where did the first idea of Chobani pop up, um, what were the early days of Chobani, like all of those types of things. Um, and slowly over time, I kind of figured out what the story was, the mythology and so, or not the mythology, the myth. So I, I, I was just in my gut kind of feeling like it is this kind of like mythology of paradise, this kind of like constant and desired return to Eden, whether you call it Eden or paradise or the orchard of golden peaches, you know, every mm -hmm. culture has their version of this of trying to return to this nature laden paradise where this magical food is at the center of it that takes care of everyone. Mm -hmm. And when I kind of stumbled upon that mythic structure of the return to nature, essentially, I was like, Oh, all of a sudden, all these little signals that I've been looking at all of a sudden perfectly plug into this structure, this mythic structure. And that's, that's the mythology that, that Shabani intuitively believes. So I was like, okay, now I have my mythology. Then it became now, how do I ex visually express that mythology? What is the tone of voice of that mythology? How does that mythology translate into product? And so working with the uh, executive creative director that I hired from Wolf Allens, Lisa Smith, who, you know, one of my favorite people in the world but we started exploring just like what does it look like what is what does you know happiness feel like what does love feel like what does innocence feel like what does youth feel like kind of like all these things that are kind of associated with paradise and eden and 
I remember walking past the blackboards that we had up with all this visual swipe and all this like exploratory design. And Lisa and the team had been organizing a bunch of photography and at the top of each, um, at the top of each cluster of images on a board, there was a little printout that said some phrase. And one of the phrases was happily ever after. And I stopped and I grabbed her and I go, that's it. That's how we are telling the story of the return to Eden is that we are seeking a happily ever after. Because what it did was is it allowed us to talk about this idea of a, of a movement towards a better place that everyone can participate in. But it wasn't like in this like religious language and it wasn't in this like corporate, uh, uh, corporate, corporate type of language where it's like this corporate speak of like these high minded lofty goals that don't really like mean right. anything or feel anyway. And it felt like a fairy tale. It felt like um, a journey you wanted to see. And it felt like there was intention behind it of like fighting for happily ever after was a phrase that we uh, started using to modify it a lot. And it also spoke to quite frankly, the fact that everything that Shibani had done up to that point had um, overcome all the odds and all the naysayers. I'm, I'm not gonna get into it now. Everybody can read about it online, but it was this sort of like this this story of this up and coming outsider who changed everything and and has along the way tried to make everything better for everyone and that's very much a fairy tale story and it allowed us to bring in magic and talk about the transformative nature of food both to your physical body your mood your relationships the environment and stuff like that so I maybe mean, it was just firing on all cylinders so happily ever after became this creative handle and that in turn gave us a world to start designing to okay so what do the people in ever happily ever after look like what do they talk like what stories do they tell what kind of art do they do and though it became really valuable when we started talking about the visual language okay if this is about chibani bringing happily ever after to everyone because let's say the factory in the valley of um upstate new york uh, and the way it's flourished since that factory was set up uh, is happily ever after. The food is then exported from happily ever after. So, okay, so that's a really interesting thing. So let's make the food look like it was made by people from happily who live in happily ever after, which is not highly modern. It's not mechanized. It's innocent. It's craft oriented. People do everything by hand. Okay, so let's make all the food for our original core yogurt look like um, crafted products, like small batch stuff. So that's mm -hmm. why everything was done by hand. Everything was made to look like it was produced with um, turn of the century uh, technology, very old technology. And then we said, okay, in terms of the brand language, how do we express it? Well, if people who live in happy, people who live in happily ever after probably have a deeper relationship with nature and they probably, their art is probably more folk art because they didn't go to like these big city universities to learn modern art and things like that. They make folk art. So we actually went and referenced a lot of uh, uh, 1860s, 1870s folk art from New England. And that became the basis for our visual language. So all our visual language is just meant, is just a reinterpretation of folk art. Wow. And, and then we layered in a color palette that felt jewel tone, that felt romantic, but also natural. Um, we specifically stayed around away from bleached white because, you know, you don't really find bleached white in nature. We stayed away from perfect blacks. So you don't find perfect blacks in nature. And so all of these things just started layering on top of each other, started to feel innocent, romantic, 
had an enchanting type of vibe to it. And so, I, I mean, there's more that I could talk about, but you can kind of see how every time we go back to dip our brush in the well of the story, we go back to the thing that we're making and it gives us a lot of great material and lenses and, and, and inspiration to kind of shape the specific things that we're working on. And to this day, we still go back to that idea and go like, okay, this is, this is the brief that we have to do to launch a product, but like, how would we do this in a way that it feels like part of the happily ever after world? It might not be the original continent of core, of, or what we call core, our original Greek yogurt, the way we designed it, but what if it's like this other island off of it? What does that island look like and how do we reimagine that in a land of happily ever after ways so that it still feels like, even though it's a different product with a different message, it feels like it's part of this broader, diverse, and rich world of happily ever after. All right, so we're talking about uh, visual identity, branding systems, and everything like that. I think you're a really great person to talk about this with. And as I mentioned in, in the beginning of the show, I want to um, kind of shed some light on our industry and how it all, all works. Um, for someone just entering the field in this space, you know, they've done some work in college uh, or university, as they say, across the pond. They have a couple different um, projects that they've worked on but a lot of it is just like logos or it's printed material or it's like a website but they want to have a case study that really shows the breadth of a full branding and identity system if you are putting that together from scratch with a very limited perspective like what is the the best way to do that and as somebody who's hiring um what are you kind of looking for there's two parts or two halves to your question the first is what am i looking for in a portfolio from someone who is is coming at an entry level at the associate level and then the second part is how do you how do you build a system or a portfolio that shows off systems work versus just identities and logos yeah so let me let me start with the first one so cool. it's important to and i was what i'm about to say is i was a victim of what i'm about to say when i was coming in so i always feel it's helpful to share which is when people are looking to hire you right out of college and stuff, they're not looking for you to come in with like expertise and be a badass and show your complete business acumen and just be this total like um, machine when it comes to leading and building things. What they want is they want somebody who's coming in with uh, an ability to self-lead, meaning you're responsible, you meet deadlines and you also over-deliver on your deadlines. And also someone who has a really interesting uh, voice through their design or through their writing or through their artwork. Um, the, the role of someone who is entry level, whether it's called junior designer, associate designer, or just designer in the company, your role is to take direction, interpret it, go off and explore as fast and as wide as possible bring back all of that to answer the ask, but also to build on top of the ask. One of the things that I really get frustrated with is when I'm leading young designers who I give some direction to and they bring me back exactly what I asked for. I know it sounds completely, <laughs> I, I know it sounds like completely wrong. Right. In the sense that like, well, you asked me for this and I'm delivering it. Why are you disappointed in what I delivered? Because every, every direction that somebody gives you, or like in, in your work, is a starting point. They're giving you direction. They're not giving you a deliverable. And that's mm -hmm. the point. A direction goes on 
on and on as long as you want to walk it. A deliverable is a hard stop, meaning just give me this. Give me this slide with this image on it. But if I say, I want you to go and explore, you know, typography that's really playful and then another direction where typography is really rigid and locked in in like an architectonic way. And if you come back and just give me one example of each, you, you gave me a deliverable. You didn't give me a direction. You didn't explore a direction. I would want you to say, okay, I blew out 50 versions of each of these. But then I also said, let me bring them together as a, as a third version. And oh, by the way, here's a fourth version that I just popped into my head as I was working. I don't know if it's any good, but I want to show it to you. Like volume and expressiveness and variety are the things that are highly valued when you're at an associate level. And if you can then bring in a brilliance of craft, a really uh, fine-tuned aesthetic sensibility on top of that, all the better. Like all like having those three things wrapped up with each other is is what makes somebody at the junior level desire like highly desirable uh, to work with. And then you know through a year or two, you'll eventually get to a point where you know your voice is more refined. You know how to work with the process. You can edit yourself before you present things and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the growth curve of it. Um, so that's that's really what I'm looking for when I'm looking through portfolios. Is someone you know, disciplined? Is someone, can someone produce a ton of stuff and work in a lot of different varieties? Does a person have a really interesting aesthetic sensibility? And then um, finally, uh, do they, are they really attuned to craft? Like do they have an, like a color, do they have an artistic sensibility, a typographic sensibility, a structural grid system sensibility? Like it's always, I wanna know where that craft is that they, that they are. Um, when it comes to the question of like brands and systems, yeah, you're hundred percent right. Making a logo is not impressive. Right. I mean, if, if we remember like, and again, this is something else Lisa, Lisa worked on, um, the USA Today logo was a circle. Mm -hmm. If you presented to me that alone as a circle, I'd be like, mm. yeah. but the thought and the thinking and the systems and the way that rolled out across the newspaper, uh, that Lisa did while she was at Wolf Olin's was brilliant. That's what made it powerful. And the reason is, it's not just because we wanna see more work or, or anything like that. There's very practical reasons why systems matter more than identities. It's because with the way that companies have, have expanded, really should say exploded the number of touch points in the world, the amount of content they have to put up, the amount of different audiences that they have to appeal to, you can't just rubber stamp a logo on everything and think it works. I mean, for instance, like a logo in a Twitter feed avatar is different than a logo on the front of packaging. Like mm -hmm. they have to work in different ways, but a brand has to appear in both places. So you have to understand how the system works. So the idea of your identity can expand and modulate across all of those different ways. And like in the example with the Chobani, we have all these different people we have to appeal to with different products. And the products have oftentimes very different opposing sometimes opposing um, points of view on what makes them special or what makes them Chobani-esque. And so we have to find a way to modulate the system and modulate the language, knowing what to leave behind, what to pull forward to bring these very different products, speaking to these very different audiences into the Chobani family. So it feels like a, a cohesive whole. And cohesive whole can mean a common graphic system across everything, like the way Coca-Cola does stuff or it can mean a common tonality across everything, like the way a Nike does it, for example. Right. 
and you just have to learn how to do all that type of stuff. And so you wouldn't know how to do all of that coming right out of school, but being able to show that you understand the need for building a dynamic system for an, for, for an identity so that it flexes is really important. Because if I see a lot of portfolios where people just rubber stamp the same colors, the same logo, the same logo pattern right. on top of stuff. Um, they just said command all, D and have it like repeat like a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> here's my logo on a bag, but it's big. Here's my logo on a t-shirt, but it's an angle. It's that was like, me. That was me the first time I showed you my book. You guys were, <laughs> you guys were kind of like, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so it's, it's great that you know how to copy and paste a logo, but that's right. not what you're going to be asked to do or what you need to do to solve the problems when you become a working graphic designer or brand identity um, designer. It's funny how, mentorship works because sometimes things seem like it's not a big deal to the to the mentor but to the mentee it means like everything and uh if there's any moment that really affected my career it was uh i came in to the collins office when you were working there um and it was to meet brian and then i i met uh you and you were sitting in an eames chair it was the first eames chair that i ever saw in my life it was so cool and uh i just i remember like seeing the work of uh, at the time it was Spotify uh, and some other campaigns up on the blackboard and it was really kind of neat because I was out of I was out of college but I hadn't really seen like real work and I saw all this stuff and I and I I knew intuitively like what looked good I was like yeah I want to do more stuff like this but uh, from a work standpoint I wasn't even close from a, a, a skill set wise my knowledge of the software. I had so much more to learn. I remember very vividly, there's like a Chipotle, uh, Chipotle like right outside of that building. I remember just staring into the burrito thinking like, oh my God, I have so much, I wanna work there so bad, but I have such an uphill thing here. And, and there's so much that I need to learn to be able to, you know, metaphorically compete at that level. Um, and it's taken a, a long time. And I remember one time actually I called you and had all these questions and kind of having yet another existential breakdown. I think when you first leave school that first year out, you're convinced you're going to be able to like will it into existence, but really it's just like hours logged, like uh, 10,000 hours kind of thing. And I remember when I called you, I had all this stuff and you just had the stoic advice and essentially the conversation was over. You were just like, follow your curiosity. It will never let you down. And I've heard you mention that before, um, but it's true. And I think that things really started to come to fruition for me as a designer when I was able to kind of just relax and similar to like how you're talking about just kind of going down these weird kind of like rabbit holes on like Pinterest and and then books and, and literature and stuff like that. Um, but I just wanted so badly to be able to create systems like that and to operate like that. But it almost, and tell me if this, this has been your experience, the more kind of like loose you are with things, the, the easier it gets. And then over time, you'll kind of learn industry best practices. But I just, it was, it's not something you can just like think up and do. It's something that you actually have to work towards if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not, I can't transfer the knowledge to you how to ride a bike. Right. You just have to ride a bike and keep failing. Yeah. So until you don't. Mm -hmm. And writing a, so riding a bike is experiential knowledge. Right. It's tacit knowledge. And so much of design is tacit knowledge. I can teach you about 
technical aspects of design, but it won't make you a better designer. Right. The technical aspects of design are names that we give to things that we intuitively learn or tacitly learn through experiences. So one of the things that I tell designers early on who are trying to discover their voice and try to refine their craft is spend most of your time early on copying other designers, trying to replicate what they did so that you can see that what they made look easy is actually really hard and then sit with that frustration and that ambiguity and that struggle to understand why on earth what you just made doesn't look at all like <laughs> the thing that Herb Lubalin did. Yeah. Like you're, you're like, it's just, it's easy. It's like these curly things. And I just, I just bend the, you know, the anchors and, and, and illustrator until I get it how I want. Like, how hard could that be? And then you try and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Like mine looks like chicken scratch and I've been working on it for five days. Like you need to go through that. And the, the, the positive benefit that is, is that it trains your eye to see things that you wouldn't have uh, done before or, or noticed otherwise. It also allows you to kind of figure out what you like and what you don't like by looking at lots of stuff and trying to play with it. Um, and that, you know, that refines your eye, that refines your, your aesthetic sensibilities. Um, and all of this stuff seeps into your work later on in ways that you don't know you can't understand and you can't pinpoint and, and, and enough seeps into it, into your work one day until you're like really good at what you do. And again, yeah. going back to the bike example, one day you just start riding a bike and you're like, I, I don't know how I got to this point of riding a bike, but all of a sudden he's riding a bike. Like I, I taught my son, I have a now five-year-old son. And a few months ago when he was four, I was teaching him to ride a bike for the first time. And we literally just repetition did the same thing over and over and over and over again until he started riding his bike. And I mean, he, I know he's four, but to make my point, he couldn't tell you what was the difference between the ninth time he tried to ride his bike and fell and the 10th time he tried to ride his bike and stayed up. Yeah. And, and that's why just that repetition and just doing things over and over again on your own is so critical and exposing yourself to different styles is critical. And then eventually you, in a metaphorical sense, in a spiritual sense, will pop out and you'll discover yourself. Yeah, because I, I had these experiences where I would kind of just do that thing you're talking about, kind of like the copy and pasting, and I would learn how to make things kind of have that sort of look, but it never really um, worked out the way I wanted to because I never really took a deep dive and, and kind of took a chance, so to speak. And um, during COVID-19, there have not been as many job opportunities. Frankly, I've actually been kind of struggling to lock down a job. I'm also looking for more, more uh, full-time work. So that's kind of a, a different uh, avenue, but um, I was kind of forced to have too much time on my hands. And I just took out these sketchbooks and I started really studying the work and I'd always liked it, but I never really tried my hand at it. And I got tracing paper and I got all like these different markers and stuff. And I tried to make um, like Seymour Quast-esque work. I tried to do Milton Glaser-esque work. And it was exactly the experience you're describing. I was so bad at it. And, I, and, and by looking at it, and, I, and to, the, to this day, I haven't really made anything yet that's like portfolio worthy, but I love the idea that one day I will be able to ride the proverbial bike. But I think it takes a level of humility 
in a sense. Like I had to humble myself and realize like you're not going to start the next Pushpin studio. You're somebody who's in your fourth year of graphic design on the professional sense and this is going to take a long time and I'm going to have to work on my craft and it's going to suck for a while, but it will come. And, and it was fun to kind of just not have that pressure of like building out this like website and having this like sellable thing. It was, it was sort of, it felt closer to like when I was a kid and I would just lay on the floor and draw. And that is critical, I think. So let me, let me tell you a story about Kurt Vonnegut. And this goes back to the point earlier about follow your curiosity. So mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut told this story. For anyone who doesn't know, Kurt Vonnegut was an author back in the 70s who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five. Maybe you probably read it in high school or college. You have to make point. me a list of all the cool shit to check out because <laughs> your references are all over the place, but I want to be uh, intellectually promiscuous, as you said before. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, Kurt Vonnegut told a story about how when he was a kid, he, he did um, some day work with an archaeologist, like literally like digging up stuff and cleaning stuff. And um, he was talking, the archaeologist, you know, kind of asked him like passing the time questions, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And um, Kurt would say, a young Kurt would say, you know, um, I'm in high school. I, you know, I love uh, playing the violin. I love, um, you know, painting this. I love, um, I love cooking or whatever. Um, but I'm not any good at any of the stuff. And um, the guy peeked up, peeked up, and said, you know, something to the effect of, "Oh, well, that's that's really interesting. I, I, you know, if you ever want to bring some of that stuff, I'd love to hear the violin or see some of your drawings and stuff." And Chris was like, "No, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not any good at it. it I just kind of do it." And the archaeologist uh, said something to the effect of like, look, here's, the, here's an important life lesson. You don't have to be good at something to do something. You can just enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. And Kurt Vonnegut, as he was retelling the story that I'm totally trashing, unfortunately, <laughs> um, said something to the effect of that that moment and that piece of advice always stuck with him because it was the first time in his life someone had ever told him something like that. And those few words of you don't have to be good at something to do something completely transformed Kurt's perception of himself. Whereas before he was like this failure who, who tried to do all these things and just could never ever become any good at them. All of a sudden he became a, uh, uh, a an interesting person who had all these different interests that he was into. And I can't, I can't remember if he mentioned this or not, but I think he mentioned something about like curiosity. Like he just did it because it was curious to him. And now he has all these great experiences and stories and little um, bits of information that kind of like encompass him and make up who Kurt Vonnegut is. And he always said that that was a, a remarkable uh, yet simple transformation in how he thought about himself and what he did. And like in, in many ways, I hear the exact same thing in what you're saying. Like mm -hmm. you shouldn't be measuring yourself to how to to a Seymour uh, Quast or to a Milton Glaser or uh, or a standard that other people have achieved. You got to find some way to sit in the activity and mm -hmm. just live in the activity and be in the activity and be curious and enthusiastic about it and be perfectly fine with that because your voice will never be uh, Milton Glaser's voice, nor should it. Milton Glaser's voice was Milton Glaser's voice. It is right. not your job to channel the now passed away Milton Glazer, Milton Glazer through you. 
your job is to find yourself. And you find that only by sitting in the activity and listening and learning about yourself rather than trying to Ouija board Milton Glaser out of yourself <laughs> so that you can perfectly be an art forger of Milton Glaser's work. Right. And that's, that's, that's what curiosity is about. You focus on the God of curiosity rather than the idol of Milton Glaser. Yeah. I love that. And I think one of the words that kind of, in my experience kind of ties in closely and I, you're like, like a wordsmith with this stuff. So I, I love just like throwing out a word and seeing where you go with it. Uh, you know, you talk about curiosity, but also I think enthusiasm is something for me that has been huge. And I, the, the semantics of these things get weird. A lot of them are kind of like synonyms for each other sort of thing. But like, I remember this experience, uh, as I mentioned before the show, I got to spend some time with Brian uh, this summer in uh, Cape Cod and just seeing his enthusiasm for architecture and, and, mm -hmm. and design and all, all other things. But we were talking about this... Um, this uh, mid-century modern house. And we share that same love for that, that style. I, I wanna have like an Eames chair and an orange couch. Meet the Creatives is actually orange because I, I wanted to have like that sort of Mad Men-esque orange couch. Anyway, so Brian is talking about like his love for um, these, this building. And he's telling me about this one particular house that he wanted to show me. So we're walking down the street and, this, and the people are outside of the house and they're talking. So he gets so excited when he sees it that he literally like runs onto their lawn essentially is like standing in like their shrubs and is like talking about like, do you know who built this house? And it's so funny because in, in my mind, I was like, oh my God, these people are going to be like, think like what's going on. But his enthusiasm was like so over the top about it that they ended up having this like really great kind of conversation. Like he was just, I love it. And it was built by this guy. And that was like that. And he was asking all these questions. And these people at first were like, who is this guy? But his enthusiasm transferred. And I actually thought about that as sort of like a, like a metaphor for life. It's like if you're really wildly enthusiastic about something and you're passionate about something, there's such a better chance of, of learning more about it and kind of like taking that, that deep dive. I just remember thinking to myself as that story, and I don't know if I'm going to leave this in there, but I just thought that was so cool to see, like just – like being passionate and being enthusiastic will really go a long way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think that's something worth digging into. So I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Sorry, Brian, by the way, I'm, I'm done talking about you now. I don't you have, you don't have to be worried. It's okay. <laughs> I told you there'd be a little fanboying at some point. I made it yeah, this yeah, far. Yeah. I did 45 minutes in. I'm good. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, but I think it also needs to be um, put in its proper place. So mm -hmm. We often hear the phrase, follow your passion. Mm -hmm. If you follow your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. So the Hallmark <laughs> card goes. Yeah. Um, I actually think that's a load of crap mm -hmm. because your passion doesn't have to be monetizable. Just because you don't make money off your passion doesn't mean it's not a passion or it means you failed. Like you, you could love, um, you know, underwater basket weaving. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares if you get paid for it, if you enjoy it? Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is if, if, if you have passion for it, you would have already been doing it. Mm -hmm. So I remember having a conversation with someone who had to do a career change uh, from the world of Broadway and dance simply because they, they you know, didn't want to dance anymore, had grown too old, their body was like kind of hurting and stuff. And this particular woman's passion was Broadway. Loved it. Loved dancing. Like all she ever did. Um, from the time that she was like four was dance. It was her identity. 
Um, she went to special schools for it. She immediately started dancing in ballets and broadways and stuff like, you know, at the age of 18 and stuff. And so for her to stop that was not just an end of a career, it was an end of an identity and the end of a passion. Um, and so she always asked the question of like, well, I want to do something, but I don't know what I'm going to be passionate about. And we had this long conversation about how if that is the question that you're asking of the world, you're always going to get silence. Because if you're passionate about something, you would have already been doing it. And mm -hmm. she did. She did it about dance. And she never at once ever asked, am I passionate about dance? It was just like, she, she didn't need to ask a question. She just did it. It's where her, her the gravitation was. It's where the magnetism was. So when you find yourself in a place where you're not engaging in your passion as a career, I think the more important question, again, goes back to curiosity. Because what curiosity says is, it says there's something that is exciting me on the edge or just beyond the edge of what I know. I can see it peeking over the horizon and I want to walk that way. And the most important thing is that not every curiosity that you have is going to endure. It's not going to lead to another curiosity and another curiosity and another curiosity. But some will. And that's the whole point of pursuing your curiosity is that the path to your path for your, to your new passion is laid in the breadcrumbs of curiosity. Damn. So, <laughs> so if you're looking for curi if you're looking for your passion, you will never see it because that's not, it's invisible. It's something that's felt. Right. But curiosity is a reaction to stimulus in the environment. And so if you see a TV show or if you see, if you hear something brought up, in a conversation, you go to Wikipedia to look it up, or you see, you hear a song at Taco Bell playing, or you, you know, you come across an image on the internet and you're like, that's really cool. I want to know more about that. That's right. curiosity whispering in your ear to, to say, walk down this path and see where it goes. There's no promises that the path will go on forever. It's just the promise that there is a path in front of you to walk, taking you from where you are to a new place. And then you have to make another decision. Do I want to keep walking this path? Is there another path or is there another curiosity which I'm walking? And so usually when you're following your curiosity, you follow this kind of like drunkard's walk. You don't know where it's going until you, until you are where it is taking you. And right. then that's when you stumble into your passion because passion is a, is a rear view mirror language. Yeah. You only know you're passionate about something when you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. It's not something preordained. So curiosity gets you into the passion. And then that language of I'm passionate is something to reflect back on this drunkard's walk journey and give meaning to all the different experiences you had along the way to lead you to where you are right now. And so when I had that conversation with this young woman, that was sort of like a light bulb switched on her head and all of a sudden she could take off pressure from herself of finding the exact right next step to take. Right. And it was like, no, let's just take a step. And actually, if I take this step and I, it's, it doesn't pan out, I can take another, a different step and I can go in a different direction. And rather than having to crunch and think about all this metaphysical, spiritual, personal stuff in my head, I can just, I can just react to things that incite curiosity in me and then pursue them um, in, in the short term or, or chase after them in the short term, like a white rabbit down a little hole. So that's that's why again and again i go back to this idea of the god of curiosity and why it is one of the most important gods for any creative soul or any person really to chase after leland this has been so great uh i really appreciated catching up with you 
Uh, you're welcome back anytime. You are, uh, I'm, I know you probably think I say this to everyone, but you really are one of the most sought after guests on Meet the Creatives. Everyone has been asking for years, when is he coming back? Uh, I one time had, I forgot if it was like JKR or Turner Duckworth. Some, somebody was applying for a job at a, a, a established like branding agency. And they, there was a quote from the last podcast. A lot of people have said they've gotten great benefit from it was, um, I believe that value is not what you can do, but what you can make possible for other people. And somebody DM me one time and was like, Hey, like you should probably let Lee know that I just used that line in a job interview and I got the job and I, <laughs> I can't make that up. Like that, I was like, wow, that's like, that's so cool that people are kind of taking some of these, this verbiage and these semantics and, and using it in job interviews. That's, that shows that my, uh, my thesis is, is working if you will. So, um, Thank you for doing this. Uh, if people want to apply for jobs at Chobani or, uh, or something like that, or they want to learn more about the company, what's a good spot to do that? Uh, and any final words in closing, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, you know, if anybody's interested in, in chatting with Chobani, I mean, certainly you can send me a note on LinkedIn or you can actually go to our Chobani.com where we have our careers page and any, any open positions are there. We actually can't open a position without posting it publicly. So that's, that is the most up-to-date resource there is. And just as a, as a final thank you to you, I know five years is a long time to be doing this. And it's, a, it's a, not only kudos to you for your enthusiasm, but I know you're, you're putting in a lot of good energy and a good knowledge into the universe for a lot of young aspiring designers who really value it. And I think back to myself when I was first trying to get into it, I had no uh, references like you or like this to turn to, it was all, I had to be all completely self-taught. So uh, I, I guess I would speak on behalf of all your audience and saying thank you for continuing to persevere and doing this. It's a, it's a part of the greater good that you're putting into the world. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I also just want to show that people are, are, you know, people like you are just a normal guy and conversations like this are possible. So I, I, on behalf of everybody else, I'd like to thank you for being here today. And uh, I'll let you go and have a, a busy day. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you.